I'm Hannah. I'm Sheena. And I'm Lori. And this is Cemetery Row. I've got allergies this week too, so if I have a whiskey tenner, I'm just gonna need y'all to be <laughs> to be uh gentle. We'll be gentle. We love you no matter what your voice sounds like. Right? Migraines, allergies. Getting old sucks, y'all. It <laughs> sure does. Happy Titanic sinking day. Ooh, oh yeah. <laughs> I mean, it started late last <laughs> night and just continued into today, so Yeah. Happy Titanic sinking day. I hope you're all dry. <laughs> one, one, one. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Um, so yeah, woohoo. Welcome to this week's episode. Um, we'll break into the stories in just a second. As usually, as usual, uh, self, <laughs> I'm not awake yet. Self promotion. Sheena has to talk about her tours. Um, Damn straight. I've got my true crime tour coming up this Saturday, April 22nd, 2023, because I don't know when you're listening to this. And then I have another true crime tour coming up. Uh, I think it's Memorial Day weekend. It is. It is May 27th. And then in June, I'm premiering a new tour at Elmwood Cemetery. Both of my true crime tours are at Elmwood Cemetery in Memphis. Um, In June 17th, I'm going to premiere... Uh, the Plot Thickens, which is my writer's tour. It's all about Ooh. writers and journalists who are buried at Elmwood. I have a lot of fascinating people on that tour. I have a guy who married living people with ghosts. I have a orthopedic surgeon. I have a woman who was an aviation columnist. Um, I It truly runs the gamut. So, Is aviation columnist sort of like Billy Joel's real estate novelist? <laughs> That's not a thing billy <laughs> true but this was the thing this uh sh- this lady was on the uh front line of uh broadcasting here in memphis and she got her start doing radio shows and then tv shows and then she got into aviation and started flying planes she started broadcasting from like fighter jets and stuff oh shit you know, no big deal then she started <laughs> no um big. yeah and then she started flying her own plane um, just okay. yeah, and, and then she wrote a column about aviation in the local paper, and it, it she's a fascinating lady. So, um, yeah, I've got a lot of really cool people. There are so many cool people buried at Elmwood. This tour was so much fun to put together. Um, so yeah, I hope y'all join me for that. And then I'm still giving ghost tours for backbeat tours in Memphis, downtown Memphis. Um, I don't know what my schedule is past next week, <laughs> but. Hopefully, yeah, hopefully I'll be on Monday nights, maybe Tuesdays, maybe Thursdays. I don't know. Um, I guess you could call Backbeat and ask them when I'm giving a tour and they'll put you on there. But that sounds a little stalkery. But I mean, if you want to do it, you can do it. Don't stalk our girl. Please don't. I don't need any more crazies on that tour. Sometimes the crazies pop up and that's not fun. (laughs) Um, Crazy or drunk? Both. Uh Uh-huh. Uh, I didn't tell y'all about my one bad experience and we're not going to talk about that on there. Yeah. Um, But generally speaking, I don't have bad experiences. Normally it's fun and people have fun experiences with me. And that sounds really weird to say, but I'm what I'm trying to say is that um, there are ghosts on my tour. So come hang out. Absolutely. Um, But we are, this week's episode is all about inventors. Yay. Yay. This was a Hannah pick. 
I know yeah. my my nerdy side um, was, of course, you know, and <laughs> some of these you could argue with me that they were not so much inventors as they were. They revolutionized some aspect of it. I give that inventor. So you can yep. fight me on that in the comments. I don't care. Um, but there's also going to be a fun little quiz that I'm going to, you know, post to the girls that you can play along with and see if you got yeah. it right or they got it right. and. <clears throat> okay, we're gonna love it. It's gonna be fun. Yes. Yep. Off. Oh yeah, I am kicking us off. Yes. yes. Derp. Go. Okay. So one of my like formative childhood memories, and that maintains a very soft spot in my heart, is the hijack. Okay. Let's see if they fight during this broadcast. <laughs> um, I don't see Gwen, so I think we're good. Um. Oh, but sit directly on my headphone cord. That's awesome. Okay. Cats. Um, leave all this in there. Um, so one of my formative like parts of childhood that I loved the most was the department store, Montgomery Ward. <laughs> I love Montgomery Ward. It no longer exists. Um, much to my great distress. But if you grew up, in the 80s, 90s, especially in the Midwest, Montgomery Ward, your grandparents shopped there. Mm -hmm. um, and it was a fantastic place. My mom got like a bunch of stuff for their very first house from there. And my first Cabbage Patch doll. Outside Montgomery Ward. Oh, <laughs> She was very pleased with herself. So we're going to talk about the dude who made Montgomery Ward and the other cool shit that he did in the retail space because he actually revolutionized a lot of shit nice so aaron montgomery ward was born february 17th 1843 which i think makes him a pisces or is he still an aquarius oh i don't know i'm not sure uh but he did pass away in 1913 on december 7th he was based in Chicago and made his fortune through the use of mail order for retail sales of general merchandise to rural customers. In 1872, he founded Montgomery Ward and Company, which is the technical name of Montgomery Ward. So picture it. It's the, it's the early 1900s and the grocery stores don't exist. So if you need <laughs> stuff, you have to you have different stores for everything in your town if you're lucky enough to live in a town. So if you do live in a town or a city, you have your dry goods store, which is things like flour, tack, rope, cloth, cotton, you know, needles and thread, stuff like that. Even then, needles and thread might only be from the seamstress or mm -hmm. the dry cleaners. Um, you had to go somewhere else to get, you know, you had to go to a butcher. You had to go to, you know, a brewer, if you're going to get beer or wine or anything like that. And that was everything else you were kind of expected to make on your own. <laughs> like if you weren't, if you didn't have chickens or a chicken plug, you didn't have eggs or chicken. <laughs> um, if you didn't know a farmer or a butcher, you're not getting meat. So there was no Kroger. You're, you know, right. you're not just rolling up into the Marianos and getting your stuff to make food for the week. If you wanted bread, you're making that shit. <laughs> Yep. So, and if you didn't live in a city or if a city or town wasn't close, because remember, a lot of the rural area is very, very ruler, uh, rural, your 
you're not getting made goods. You're not getting flour unless you make it. You're not getting, you know, dry goods unless you're making them. Um, so Ward, who is a traveling salesman of dry goods, so he would go around in a wagon and have, you know, a stock of stuff. He was the earliest Schwann's man um, <laughs> and would, you know, go to these farms and be like, you know, what do you need? You know. And so he was like, this really sucks because they were being overcharged and they were being underserved because there's just not that many. You know, it's not easy to fill up a wagon full of flour and shit and take it out to the country. You don't have refrigeration. Yeah. You don't have good storage. You know, it's just it's not a great system. Um, and they were being overcharged by a lot of the small town real um, retailers for you know, just your general shit that you need. Um so he opened a mail order house in 1872 uh, by heavy use of the railroads in Chicago and associating with some business partners in the nonprofit Patrons of Husbandry, which later became to known as the Grangers, which is an agricultural union. Um, he began to offer his rural customers a larger stock of products than what was available in their towns and at a much lower price. So he didn't do bargaining and he didn't do credit, but his prices were lower. His free catalog, which was printed by really nice. So he had a really nice catalog. So he is really the beginning of catalog shopping. And again, if you were a kid in the 80s and 90s, the catalogs. Elite oh, chef's they kiss. were wonderful. I mean, Elias. the Sears wish book. Oh. oh, my God. I love the Sears wish book. I will occasionally go online and look up like the 1993 Sears Whoosh book and just like be back there in that space. Yep. All of the Garfield phones you could ever want. <laughs> <laughs> and he was able to mail his free catalog because he started using the post office's rural delivery service, um, which support <clears throat> your rural mail mail carriers because they're real ones yeah um and he also lobbied for the parcel post system which came about in 1906 so your parcel post system is the delivery of packages and things like that which for the longest time the post office didn't do they only did letters and mailings so now if you get you know your packages from your etsy store or whatever through the post office you have aaron montgomery ward to thank for that nice um he also was rival to Sears Roebuck. Have you heard yeah. of them? And he was a protector of Grant Park in in Chicago, which Grant Park is where they do Lollapalooza. It's where they do all kinds of stuff. So we're going to go a little bit into his history because he was an awesome dude. So Aaron Montgomery Ward, again, was born in 1843 or 1844, you know, back in the day. Who's to know? In yeah. Chatham, New Jersey, but we're not going to hold that against him. <laughs> um, when he was about nine years old, his father, Sylvester Ward, moved the family to Niles, Michigan. Um, his daddy was a pastor. When Montgomery was 14, he apprenticed to help. Um, he apprenticed to a trade. I'm sorry. Dyslexia um, <laughs> to support a his family according to his brief memoirs he earned 25 cents a day at a cutting machine and a barrel stave factory and then stacking bricks at a kiln for 30 cents a day oh man so he was a hard-working little bud he saw employment in the town of saint joseph michigan where he went to work in a shoe store 
Um, this was a market town for a farm area devoted to fruit orchards. So starting in sales eventually led him to what made him famous. Uh, being a fair salesman, within nine months, he was engaged as a salesman in a county general store at $6 a month plus board. So he lived at the store. Yeah. And that was a con- actually a pretty good salary for the time. He rose to the head clerk and general manager and worked there for three years. By the end of that time, his salary was $100 a month plus board. Nice. Fancy. So check him out. In 1865, he came to Chicago where he worked for Case and Sobin, a lamp house. He traveled for them as a salesman and sold goods on commission. Uh, Chicago was the center of the wholesale dry goods trade. Um, we actually have a huge building downtown called Merchandise Mart, which is where a lot of that stuff was warehoused and sold out of. Um, in 1860s, he joined the leading dried goods house, Field, Palmer, and Leader, which was the forerunner of the Marshall Fields Company. He worked for Field for two years and then joined the high sale, the wholesale dry goods business of Wills, Gregg, and Company. And tedious rounds of train trips to southern communities, hiring rigs at the local stables, driving out to the crossroads, listening to the complaints of backcountry proprietors mm-hmm. and their customers, he conceived a new merchandising technique direct mail sales to country people. It was a time when rural customers longed for the comforts of the city, yet all too often were victimized by the monopolists and overcharged by the costs of many middle of the many middle men. That was a lot of M's in one side <laughs> <laughs> to bring manufactured products to the country. So remember in Oh Brother Where Art Thou where he just wants some Dapper Dan? Yeah. Yes. And it's gonna take about two well, weeks six, to get yeah, it. Two weeks. Yep. It's goddamn geographical anomaly. It's two weeks from everywhere. Yep. Um, <laughs> this is kind of the situation he was dealing with. Um, the quality of the merchandise was also suspect, and the hapless farmer had no recourse in a buyer beware economy. Ward shaped a plan to buy goods at low cost for cash by eliminating intermediaries with their markups and commissions and drastically cutting selling costs. He could sell goods to people, however remote, at appealing prices. This is the direct to consumer model that we now have today where, you know, if I see something on Amazon that I like, I'll go to the manufacturer's website and see if I can't get it same price or cheaper. He invited them to send their orders by mail and delivered the purchases to their nearest railroad station. The only thing he lacked was capital. Ain't that the way. None of Ward's friends or business acquaintances enjoyed joined his enthusiasm for his idea, which, bro, if I'd have been alive, what money I'd have had, I'd have given it to you. Yeah. (laughs) Damn good idea. Um, Although his idea was generally considered to border on lunacy. Oh, bless him. And his first batch of inventory was destroyed by the Great Chicago Fire. Oh, bless him. Of course him. it was. He of course it was. So in August of 1872, with two fellow employees and a total capital of $1,600, he formed Montgomery Ward and Company. He rented a small shipping room on North Clark, Clark Street and published a general merchandise mail order catalog with 163 products listed. Do you guys remember the service merchandise catalog? Yes. Yeah. They used to have a store in Memphis. It was. I know. I used to go all the time with my parents. I loved it. (laughs) Um, It is said that in 1880, Air Montgomery Ward initially wrote all of the catalog copy. When Mm. the business grew and department heads wrote merchandise descriptions, he still went over every line of copy to make certain it was accurate. 
The following year, both of Ward's partners left him, but he hung on. Good for him. Later, yeah. George Robinson Thorne, his future brother-in-law, joined him in business. This was the turning point for the young company, which grew and prospered. Soon, the catalog, frequently reviled and even publicly burned by rural retailers, became known fondly as the Wish Book. Aww. It was a favorite in households all across America. Ward's catalog was soon copied by other enterprising merchants, most notably Richard Warren Sears, who mailed his first general catalog in 1896. Others entered the field, and by 1971, catalog sales exceeded $250 million in postal Ooh. revenue. Although Sears Tower in Chicago is famous for once being the world's tallest building, Montgomery Ward's headquarters once held that distinction. The Montgomery Ward Tower on the corner of Michigan Avenue and Madison Street in Chicago reigned as a major tourist attraction in the early 1900s. Cool. Montgomery mm -hmm. Ward died in 1913, age 70. His wife, Elizabeth, bequeathed a large portion of his state to Northwestern University and other educational institutions. The Montgomery Ward's catalog place in history was acknowledged when the Grolier Club Society, of, a society of bibliophiles in New York, exhibited in 1946, along with Webster's Dictionary, as one of the hundred books with the most influence on life and culture of the American people. Oh, wow. That's big. Right. A bronze bust honoring Ward and several other industry magnates stands between the Chicago River and Merchandise Mart in downtown Chicago. A smaller version of that bust is located in Chicago's Grant Park. In 2010, Chicago Park Board President of Commissioners renamed Erie Park in honor of Montgomery Ward. It is located at 630 North King Street or Kingsbury Street, a few blocks away from the old Montgomery Ward and Company Catalog House at 600 West Chicago Avenue. In 2005, Forbes Magazine readers and editors ranked Aaron Montgomery Ward as the most as the 16th most influential businessman of all time. Despite the collapse of his catalog business and brick and mortar department stores in 2001, Montgomery Ward and Company's reincarnation as an online retailer still adheres to the once unheard philosophy of satisfaction guaranteed although it is not the same company it's just the same name yeah and if you are in kansas city missouri um montgomery ward's electronics department spun off into its own kind of storefront in like the 90s and it was called electric avenue oh cute <laughs> and it has like some of the og signage still up and it is as beautifully 1992 as you can imagine so Sounds every time you look at a catalog think about a montgomery ward and my mom standing outside of a montgomery ward in kansas city missouri in 1988 <laughs> to buy me a cabbage patch <laughs> Yay. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And let, let me don't forget about his tomb because what are we doing here he has <laughs> a baller ass tomb he better it is at rose hill um it is his whole fam be up in there <laughs> it is the a montgomery ward memorial um the bit doorway i guess is like this beautiful wrought iron floral motif it is gorgeous cool um so yes he's in there his wife elizabeth cobb ward 
Um, and two of his children, Marjorie Ward Baker and Robert Ray Baker, which is, I'm assuming, Marjorie's husband. Cool. And a beautiful stained glass. We'll have pictures of it. It's absolutely beautiful. Carved marble, the whole Megilla. You're going to love it. Nice. Awesome. Woo-hoo. All right. Great story, so- Hannah. So interesting. Hey, yeah. I, I, like I can't that. wait to see the pictures. So I'm doing things a little differently this week Ooh. because ultimately the dude I decided to investigate, there wasn't a whole lot there story wise, you know. Yeah. Um, but so I thought I would walk everyone through my process of how <laughs> yeah, if I don't, if I don't have some. Gets made. <clears throat> Yeah, so if I don't have any ideas, this is kind of how I start things. So I didn't have a specific inventor in mind, so my first move was to Google headstones of inventors. And I mean, I got a bunch of random stuff. I got this dude who in, who has invented or is working on like video on headstones where you can see a video about the person. Then there was somebody else who put a QR code on a headstone, which... Yep. Dude, that's not going to be around in 150 years. Nope. Like, they're going to be like, what the fuck is this? But yep. it'll go down in the history books, I guess. Um, and so the only interesting thing that really popped up under that Google search was Elijah Bond, who the the man who first patented the Ouija board. Yeah. And yeah, yes. his, his headstone's really cool. Like, when you think of headstones of inventors his is the first one that pops up because it's a replica of the famous talking board um but bond actually died in 1921 following a quote stroke of paralysis so i'm guessing <laughs> stroke. just a stroke yeah um in 1921 and he was buried in an unmarked grave at first and it wasn't until 2007 when Ouija board historian and expert because that's a thing. Robert Murch Society. Yes. Like this dude, like really? Okay. Um, So this dude, Robert Murch found his grave and got permission from his, the cemetery and uh, bond surviving family to erect this um, headstone. That is a replica of the, the Ouija board on the front and on the back, it has his information and, uh, recognizes him as the first patent owner of the Are you going to tell the story of how they got the patent? No, I'm not, because this asshole fought in the Civil War. Oh, yeah. Not in the Civil War. <laughs> I missed right. He fought in the Confederacy. And yeah. while, you know, I'll talk about murderers, I'll talk about all kinds of stuff. I draw the line at fighting for the Confederacy. Don't at me. Of course, we don't have any Confederate supporters, right. I would hope, listening to this podcast. But yes, that is our heart. We'll cover yeah. murderers, but fuck the yeah. Confederacy. So, so fuck that guy. So that, so that I'll is be all... really quick about. Yeah. So in order to get a patent, you have to prove that your shit works. Uh-huh. So him and his business partner took it into the patent office and had the patent officer play with it. And the patent officer believed that it was doing something. So that's how they got their patent. Oh, wow. Yeah, no, I didn't even go that far. I was like, oh, his headstone's cool. Oh, he fought for the Confederacy. Yeah, it's, mm. you know. Yeah. So then it was like, okay, let's move on. Who's who's another interesting inventor? And so um, and I can't, re- I think it may be had, had been under... Uh, the same Google search. And I was getting accidental inventions and things like that. And so then there's John Stith Pemberton. He's a pharmacist. He invented Coca-Cola in 1885. Cool. I used to love to drink Diet Coke. 
And his story is kind of kind of awesome how he came to it. He became addicted to morphine after he was stabbed in the chest during the Civil War. Jesus fucking Christ. Um, so Sounds he was basically right. looking for like a methadone sub like substitute yeah. to wean himself and others off of morphine. So he turned to coca, which yes, is the same leaf that is cocaine okay. is derived from. And created the first version of the drink that would one day become Coca-Cola. And it was made like with a French wine. So it was alcohol based. And when temperance came to Atlanta, he had to redevelop the formula again with Coca and Cola nuts, which Cola nuts are also a stimulant. And he named it Coca-Cola because Coca-Cola and sold it for five cents a glass wasn't really successful he died like two years later in 1888 he sold the formula before his death for 1750 dollars, which is about fifty six thousand dollars today so not a lot when you think about it in the grand scheme right um so again why not do a deep dive on this dude i mean fuck i mean got stabbed in the chest and apparently had this pretty impressive scar yep you guessed it <laughs> fought for the confederacy and in Atlanta and the 18 18- Yeah, so kick rocks John Pemberton, and while I will (laughs) include a picture of Elijah Bond's headstone, because it's cool, and, you know, this guy's got a confederate, like, a symbol, like, recognizing, so fuck that, you can Google it if you want to see his headstone, it's, I'm not sure, Sheena, what do you call it, it's it's set up kind of like the the Presley's at Graceland, where it's that long... Oh, like a ledger kind of stone. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. it's that, which I mean, I guess is okay. But again, it has that Confederate symbol, and fuck that. Yep. You know, whatever. So then this next guy I came across was interesting. Elias Howe Jr., who was the first person to patent the sewing machine. Oh, um. Cool. So basic another basic boring white guy i mean sewing machine <laughs> he supported the union during the civil war he funded equip he, he he provided money to fund equipment to the 17th connecticut volunteer infantry regiment and he served as a private um he seemed to be pretty cool he, he looks like matt berry um <laughs> from what we do in the shadows laszlo yeah. for those of you not in the know um and he actually got his like that he was recognized as an inventor later and um was on a stamp for the inventor series. Oh, they cool. did him dirty because there is an actual picture of him and he was, you know, he's kind of hot. He could get it. Um and he looks ugly as fuck on those stamps. <laughs> they have him looking like Benjamin Franklin oh, no. instead of good old Laszlo. Okay, so, what's his name? I've got to Google. Elias Howe Jr. And there's one picture of him with his, you know, his dark hair and his like little, you know. Oh my God! Yes, he's Matt Berry. Not a yes, exactly. Um, So he actually had to fight other companies because he had the patent for the sewing machine. But uh, like Singer's, like, well, fuck that guy. I'm gonna sell these myself. And so he had a five year court battle um, to get them to pay him for all the money they were making so he was uh had to be paid considerable royalties 
that made him a millionaire by his death at age 48 in 1867. I don't know how he died. I didn't he go that said, far. He better have my money. But his grave marker is fucking insane. It's a huge, ornate granite pedestal with a massive bronze bust of good old Eli. Like, it good. is... And it's it. It, it's it looks like him, the picture of him that you see when you see him. Yeah. Um. So so they didn't you know fuck him over with the Benjamin Franklin looking <laughs> stamp. Uh, the grave site is also the final resting place of his fourth wife Rose. Um, is surrounded by a green enclosure, so like a fence, and you have to take steps to get up to it. It is fancy as fuck epic so so yeah cool. why not why not you know do a little more digging find out more about his personal life how he can yeah. it's how he a sewing machine <laughs> yeah yeah well the dude i actually do talk about did have four wives as well so Damn. i think i'm sensing a trend here uh white dudes uh Lots yeah anyway um i the sewing machine is a very important invention but uh, you know, just I want something more exciting, exciting than that. Something random. Yeah, yeah. You know, let's see. So then I was like, okay, let's stop this. What is something that I love that I want to know who invented it? The lava lamp. Yeah. <laughs> so I Googled who invented the lava lamp. And that is how I came to learn about Edward Craven Walker. And again, not a lot known about him really outside of, you know, a few things, but there's a little bit of crazy, which I always love. So we're going to, we're going to talk about crazy. this guy. So he was born July 4th, 1918 in Singapore. Um, he was a British citizen. Um, he served in the Royal Air Force during World War One, and flew mosquito aircraft on recon missions. Um, and sometime after the war, he was in a small country pub. And he saw like a rudimentary egg timer that was using two fluids that could not be mixed. It was more of a decoration. It wasn't actually something that worked, but it inspired him to begin working on the idea of what would become the Astro Baby Lamp in 1963. Astro Baby Lamp? Yeah, that was what he called it at first before it became the lava lamp. And the lava, you know air bunnies uh is actually a colored wax mixture inside a clear or translucent translucent liquid Mm. um so he patented it and set up shop with his third wife christine in dorset england and that's kind of how it came to be um this was in the 60s so you know hippie culture it became wildly popular in the 60s and 70s um, and high off your ass and just watch it (laughs) i know it was featured in shows like doctor who the prisoner are you being served which is my absolute favorite show from the 70s uh and others um its popularity did abate in the 80s, but he did believe that, you know, this is good t- This is a timeless thing. He oh, said, yeah. quote, I think it will always be popular. It's like the cycle of life. It grows, breaks up, falls down, and then starts over again. Every quote. kid goes through their hippie phase. Right. Oh, yeah. Well, and then in the 90s, there was like this resurgence yeah. of people, you know. Yep. It, 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 I had one in the 90s. I well, did it's, too. Just, it's just like yeah. fashion, you know, yeah, those low rise jeans that oh, were my, the bane of my existence because I am not built for low rise <laughs> no, jeans. Or apparently now, like, nah. yeah, my hips lie. <laughs> or, you know, what, whatever. So, are they? Maybe they don't lie. That's why it's so ridiculous. <laughs> but anyway, so they they become they became popular in the nineties again. Uh, 
because people were being nostalgic for the 60s yeah. and 70s. And I still see them in Target to this day. Oh, God. I, I, bought, I had one in my office when I worked in an office. I yeah. want one. Like, I've I'm been looking have to buy at one them. for the new place. Because I've right. been thinking about buying a new one. Yeah. Well, it's like, I want to actually get, because the company, okay, so, so, uh, so in the 90s, he was getting up in the years, and he sold the rights of his company, Mathmos, to Cressida Granger, who at that point was a young entrepreneur. And she's the st- she's still the owner and managing director of Mathmos today, and they still produce lava lamps. Oh, cool. So, and you can actually get, like, an original Astro Baby lamp. They're, nice. they're, they're pricey, but, I mean, it's like the ones you get at Target aren't, you know. Yeah. 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 Because the one I have at Target, the light's dead in it. Because I yeah. Um, yeah, the one I, I got uh, when I was a teenager in the nineties. I want to say my gram got it from like a lighting store. Like, yeah, right. You know, there there are. Like, I don't want to burn the house down. <laughs> right. Yeah. Now the kids loved it because the one I the one I got at Target that was in my office for years was it. I put it in uh, Sawyer's room. So. Cool. Yeah, Mathmos is still a thing. You can go see a little bit about their history. Um, and it's a woman-owned company. So, you know, fantastic. Nice. So what makes Edward's story a little wild? Well, a lot of articles I saw about him called him a, and I should have looked up how to pronounce this because I'm sh- naturist, naturist, yeah. naturist, naturist. And so I was like, cool, dude digs nature. I can dig it. And then no, I found out what a naturist is. It means. doesn't mean what I thought it meant. No, it does not. It's another name for nudist. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> well, good for him. So, no, well, not, him. not not so much when we get to the douchey part of his story. Oh, oh no. Um, apparently, while he was visiting an island off the coast of France with his first wife, Marjorie, he was introduced to the subculture and was hooked. Uh, Marjorie wasn't so keen on life in the buff i mean she had <laughs> three kids and was like i didn't sign up for this shit yeah. so she stayed at home and raised their kids while he went off gallivanting and Indeed. connected with this young nudist named elizabeth oh jesus he would become his second wife in 1962 so very the 60s yeah so he he was like i love nudism I want to promote it. How do I do this? I'm going to make movies. Oh, no. no. He promoted his cause beginning in 1961 with the film Traveling Light, which is described as an underwater ballet. What? (laughs) The description on IMDb reads, quote, while sunbathing at Studland Bay, Elizabeth Walker gets invited to join some naturists on a trip to the famous nudist colony at Villata in Corsica. There she meets Yannick, who performs a unique underwater ballet. In I bet. Okay, because Yannick, like Y-O-N-I-C, can also mean vaginal. Well, this is the guy's actual medicine. Yeah, this is this guy's actual name. I I don't know much about this Yannick guy or whatever, but I guess he was a popular new. How much Um, drugs were they on? I don't know. And yes, so Elizabeth Walker from the movie is his wife. Yeah, Elizabeth Walker. Of course. Um, And she was the star of all three of his films, which included Sunswept and Eves on Skis. 
<laughs> You're not going to tell me these aren't pornos. I mean, the pic, like Eve's on skis. The picture is like the poster is three naked ladies on skis in the snowy. Yeah, like. So the la- the the latter two movies were not as successful as Traveling Light. Traveling wow. Light ran for six months and was considered a box office success. And he was able to get around the censors because this was the 60s, man. I mean, yeah. nudity because he didn't show pubic hair. <laughs> so, and two, okay. I figured, I bet he's still selling it, too, as an art movie. Oh, I'm sure. Art is different. And this was 60s. This was like prime retro bush, you know. I know. Yeah. So, unfortunately, his love story with Elizabeth didn't last long because they divorced in 1964. (laughs) Jesus, that didn't take long. (laughs) Yeah. That first wife is laughing somewhere. Oh, God, yes. So, because of the success of Traveling Light. And the lava lamp, because this is all going on at the same time as all of this naked stuff. Uh, he was able to open his own nudist club on the southern coast of England called the Bournemouth and District Outdoor Club. Oh, and nude. now this is where we come English to the people in the 70s. Yeah. And this is where we come to the douche canoe part oh, dear. of Edward Walker, because he served in the military and he was very fit and regimented. He tried to ban overweight nudists at his resort. Well, I can tell him where he can shove it. Exactly. This is what he said. Craven. Yes, you craven bastard. So this is what this dude said. Quote, we are against all these fat fogies. It's not what naturism should be about. End quote. You just want hot naked chicks. Exactly. You old fucking horn dog. Like, really? We were all rooting for you, Edward. I, I wanted you to be perfect, but he's a base. He's a white dude, and the Ugh. sense of entitlement—a British mm. white dude at that. Yeah. So you know, may- maybe we'll do an inventor's part two, and I'll focus yes. on like a person of color because I always wanted to do Madam C.J. Walker, but uh-huh. she intimidates yes. me. So she's a lot. Yeah. She's, she's awesome. A lot. Though. So so yes. Yeah, so anyway, but just the naked part, just. I could overlook as he doesn't like fat people. That's okay. Lots of people don't like fat people, but fuck you, dude. Anyway, as a fat person, I don't like Uh, Yes. Yes, exactly. Exactly. I'd be lucky to see my naked. Yeah. You want to see my, 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 you know, skinny people don't usually have the titties, y'all. Yep. And he uh, probably has one of those like anemic British bodies. So, oh, I yeah, 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 no, he was, a, he was they, like one of his obituaries talks about how he was very regimented and fit because. Yeah. Of his fuck that. Anyway, so he married a fourth time. Jesus Christ. To a woman named Susanna, uh, who he was still married to when he died of cancer on August 15th, 2000, at the age of 82. Oh, so you're telling me that the uh, fit body did not save him from no, it did not. getting cancer it did or dying. Not. Wow. Okay. He still got cancer. Uh, so he had a son and two daughters from his marriage to Marjorie. So I can understand why Marjorie was like, fuck that. I don't want my people seeing my stretch marks. I don't want to, you know. Right. No one needs to see this. And I am all about that. I, I, I like, I don't even like to be naked in my, you know. <laughs> I'm someone, y'all, that wears a bra 24 7. It's a sports bra, but I do not <laughs> like the feeling of my titties sagging. Hey. I, breastfed, I breastfed two babies. They serve their purpose. I like them to be 
Contained. Contained. Now they're put yes. away. Contained they're away. And, not, and not sagging. That's just you me. Put them away for, yes. for their exactly. service. <laughs> they, they they've done their their service. <laughs> you may rest now. Um, <laughs> so, and he did have a child with Christine, who was the wife that he basically launched the lava lamp with. She was a part of the company and all of that. Um, he was buried in a cemetery in New Forest. No, I tried so hard to find out where. There's not like no record of it, hmm. but you know, someone uh, who was I talking to? Someone? Oh, my sister-in-law joked that maybe they made him into a lava lamp, and that's why they haven't shared where that he's be buried. Awesome. That would he's be not. Cool. He's not. But yeah, so that is my how my mind works, and that's in general. Anytime we pick a topic that I don't really have an idea of who I want to talk about, that's generally how it goes. Yeah, yeah. Um, and you guys know there was another guy I wanted to talk about, Wiley Post, who was um, uh, an aviator and inventor, and he was like best buds with Will Rogers. Um, I liked him because he was Native American and had an eye patch, but. I just, I didn't want to do, I've done a lot of aviators and type yeah. of stuff. So I was like, I really, I don't want to get into his story this time. Maybe I'll come back and do Wiley in another episode because dude wore an eye patch. That's fucking yeah. cool. Absolutely. So. We'll do a whole episode on just eye patch wearers. Yeah. yeah. It may come to that. <laughs> I'm down for we, that. We are going to run out of ideas that we're just going to be like, okay, this person wore an eye patch. This person, <laughs> we're going to talk about a person with a tattoo. but anyway so that is how my brain works and that is a little bit about the inventor of the lava lamp i love that so go to mathmos's website um again i know i've been on there like poking around they they have really cool stuff like if you're gonna get a legit lava lamp i would say get one from them the copper one was calling my name yeah yeah, you know that you're 85 uk dollars but i like it but just remember how much does a lamp cost like an actual decent and i was looking on their website too of like they do a recycling program or refurbishing so if like it starts to go out you can send it back to them and they'll you know refinish it for you and send it back to you so yeah so investment pieces buy investment pieces yes and again woman-owned company gotta gotta support that so very cool all right that must be his first wife that's in the picture yes christine well it's not his the fur Okay, oh, I think wife. it's it's his third wife. Okay, because like I don't know the code. order of the I'll, yeah, like it I took that was the most time I spent was like <laughs> was he married to Marjorie when he didn't know? Uh, okay, yeah. so it was Christine was the one that kind of uh, was it. a part of that whole, gotcha. whole process. So yes, she's in the pictures. She was looking fierce. Yes, she was. So and now it's quiz time, right? Pop quiz time. Yay. Okay, so I'm gonna give you guys a name. And their birth and death dates. And I okay. want you guys to tell me what you think they invented. All right. Okay. You ready? Here yes. for it. James Alexander Dewar, born February 5th, 1897, died June 30th, 1985. Ooh. When you say Dewar, for some reason, my first thought was the band Guar. <laughs> and I'm like, <laughs> wouldn't it be cool if he invented that band um i'm gonna say well now remember these are all chicago area folks oh okay that might make a difference the chicago style hot dog Ooh, that's a good <laughs> idea I, I don't know i have no idea Sheena? um hair dryer 
Twinkies. <laughs> oh, at least I was in the, at least I was kind of, you know. Yeah. <laughs> Very cool. Okay. Now this one is not from Chicago and she's our only lady on the list, but she's amazing. Mary Beatrice Davidson Kenner, born May 17th, 1912, died January 13th, 2006, and she is from the Carolinas. Action figures. I think it's going to have something to do with like homemaking, like or or beauty products. But I, I, I'm gonna hair dryer. There we go. <laughs> the sanitary belt. Oh, okay. So for our younger folk, and this is even older than us, honestly. But yeah. the first edition of Are You There, God? It's Me, Margaret mentions the sanitary belt. And so back before pads had the super awesome adhesive that they have today, you had to put it in your underwear with a belt that went through your crotch and then around your waist. And that's how mm-hmm. you kept your pad in your panties. Thank you for adhesive, even though I do not wear pads. Good for her. Okay. This is three people. Louis Ruckheim, his brother, Frederick Ruckheim, and Charles Frederick Gunther. And they were in the early 1900s. Bagels. Lori? Hey. I have no idea. Shoelaces. <laughs> Cracker Jacks. Oh, cool. <laughs> All right. Well, we- she knit food item. <laughs> exactly. <Yeah. laughs> um, so we talked about him a little bit off mic, but Cyrus Hall McCormick. I know that last name. You got your thinking. Of. Yeah. Spices. Spices is all I can think of. I know you said that wasn't it, but... The Mechanical Reaper. What's a Mechanical Reaper? It's a combine. He invented oh. the first combine. <laughs> okay. That's cool. Yeah. So Very cool. big in agriculture. It's why we have mass-produced spices and shit today. Yeah. Oh, okay. Well, this yeah. is going to be a bit of a giveaway, but entertain me. Charles Rudolph Walgreen. <laughs> 9th of October, 1873. December 11th, 1939. Walgreens. Yes. Walgreens. It's the father of the American drugstore. Oh, okay. Um, This one is not going to be super obvious. And honestly, the one reason I kind of picked him is because my grandpa Donegan worked for this guy's factory in Kansas City um, during the wartime. So that'll give you a hint. Vincent Hugo Bendix. August 12th, 1881 to March 27th, 1945. Bendix. Bendix. B-E-N-D-I-X. <laughs> Which makes me think of like a bendy straw. So the bendable <laughs> straw. That's my guess. Um, it's good. Something military. Um, Probably. Uh, guns. Some type of gun. <laughs> Very close. So he made his own car called the Bendix Buggy. he also made carburetors and electric starters which are now the standard in automo manufacturing today nice he also made radio and military equipment during world war ii very cool yeah all right stephen f kordak december 26 1911 to february 19th 2012 The elixir of life, <laughs> right? <laughs> to give uh, you a hint, this is a playful one. 
a playful mm. one. See, I was thinking Play-Doh. computers. Play-Doh. Again? Play-Doh. Okay, what did um, Lori say? Stinky, sl- stinky Play-Doh. Slime. <laughs> Pinball machines. Oh! oh. That's cool. <laughs> um, and this one, people may argue with me that he didn't invent them. He was just a revolutionary in their building and design, which I think gives him inventor cred. Yeah, absolutely. So John A. Miller, who was born sometime in 1872, we don't know when, um, but died June 24th, 1941. What's his name? John A. Miller. Miller Beer. Oven. Roller coasters. Whoa. Okay. <laughs> that wasn't evil. That's that. fun. Yeah. Yeah. So all of these, with the exception of Miss Mary Kenner, are buried in the Chicago area. That's cool. Awesome. Well, that was fun. Yeah. I'm just pleased that there was an inventor of Twinkies. Yeah, I, I know, know right? <laughs> and Cracker Jack. I'm like, shit, yes. no, I want Twinkies and Cracker Jack. Same. Also, having looked up the inventor of the lava lamp and his picture, I don't want him telling me what I can and cannot do naked. I know. So I know. He has do no you room to, see to talk. That man naked? No, I do not. He is the 60s British version. He's 60s of British. Fit, which is not fit. No. Yeah. It's no. anemic British bodies. I said what I said. Yes. Yep. No, absolutely. All right. Sheena Bina. Yay, my turn. Um, I wanted to do a quick book recommendation before I jump into my story. And it's all related because um, I listened to this book on audiobook. I just finished reading The Dead Beat by Marilyn Johnson. And it is all about obituaries and obituary writers, obituists. Or obituaries. I can't say that right. Um, it's a quick little read and it is delightful if you love obituaries and I do I think maybe journalists or former former journalists may get a little more out of it than the regular reader but I could be wrong there's just a lot to it that I really appreciated having come from a journalism background so um, it's not a sad read it is very funny and it's just about people who have amazing obituaries and the people who seek interesting people out to write about them and all of that. It's really good. Awesome. Anyway, so picture it. 1877. Thomas Edison invented the phonograph. And when he did, he imagined phonographic books for blind people. In fact, the first thing he recorded was Mary Had a Little Lamb, the first recorded verse. Oh. And while the first recording device was invented by a man, there were several women who saw the invention as a way to help others read and learn. So I'm going to talk about women who helped revolutionize or kickstart the audiobook industry. Um, I was never an audiobook listener until the pandemic. And then as far as I'm concerned, they saved my life over the Mm -hmm. last three years. Oh, absolutely. Um, Absolutely. I, when I go out to clean stones, not what it used to be. (laughs) My neither, my neither. When I go out to clean stones at Elmwood, I always have a book on and I, I've read, listened to, read, whatever, more books in the last three years than I have in the last 10 years easily. Um, So I just, I really appreciate audiobooks. So anyway, those uh, super early phonographs used cylinders instead of flat vinyl records like we know today. And those cylinders could only hold a few minutes worth of content. So it wasn't really a great way to record a book or a story of any, you know, super long length. 
By the 1930s, the flat platter style records were the norm, and you could get about 20 minutes of content on either side, so that made it a little more ideal for recording longer narratives. And in 1931, the American Foundation for the Blind and the Library of Congress Books for the Adult Blind Project established the, quote, Talking Books Program, also known as Books for the Blind, which provided reading materials for veterans injured in World War I, as well as other visually impaired adults. And the first test recordings in 1932 included uh, The Raven by my husband, Edgar Allan Poe, (laughs) and um, a chapter of Helen Keller's Midstream. The Talking Books program received congressional approval for exemption of copyrights, so they didn't have to worry about, oh, this was just published, we have to get the copyrights. Like It was like, no, this is is for a good cause. And it also, um, they also got free postal distribution for talking books. And some of the early recordings, in addition to those, were um, sections of the Bible, the Declaration of Independence, Shakespeare's plays and sonnets, and fiction by Agatha Christie, Rudyard Kipling, Gladys Hasty Carroll, and Cora Jarrett. I and wonder if that's why media mail is cheaper than standard first class mail now. Maybe. I don't know. Good question. Um, and what I thought was cool, too, was that Britain and the U.S. shared their catalogs with each other to save oh. money. So I thought that was very nice. So the first of our amazing women is Anne McDonald. She was born Anne Hunter Thompson in New York. <laughs> we can put an S in there. <laughs> I know. I thought that was kind of cool. Uh, she was born December 15th, 1896. I forgot to look up what does that make her. It's either Sagittarius or a Capricorn. Either way, she married stockbroker Ranald McDonald Jr. And they had two kids, Ranald and Anne. Um, so they named their kids after themselves, which I'm like, you know what? Cool. Go for it. Anne McDonald was a member of the New York Public Library's Women's Auxiliary, and she founded Reading for the Blind and Dyslexic, later renamed Learning Ally in 1948. She founded it because so many World War II veterans had come home blinded and they wanted to listen to books. And the U.S. recently passed the GI Bill of Rights, which promised a college education to all veterans. Oh. But of course, if you are recently blinded, you a textbook, textbook is useless. Yeah. So Anne and her will, women's auxiliary um, founded the program, and they had the motto: "Education is a right, not a privilege." Ooh, and I like these ladies. I do too. The women transformed the New York Public Library's attic into a studio to record textbooks. And in 1952, she established seven more recording studios in cities across the U.S. And throughout her career, she oversaw the entire system for recording books and textbooks. And this system involved thousands of volunteers recording, duplicating, and mailing vinyl records, later cassette tapes, but for now, vinyl records, for blind readers, which I thought was just really cool. I'm like, yeah, for okay. you, ma'am. Like Edward Kemper was among the volunteers. <laughs> that program. Yeah. Well, there you go. They can't all be winners, you know. <laughs> um, he was just sitting in Vacaville, not doing anything. Yeah, exactly. Um, but yeah, I I thought that was cool. And I'm like, you know, I'm I'm I like that this was done for the veterans, but there were blind people 
just out there, not, you know, they didn't, they weren't just blinded in a war, but you yeah. could have done something for them too anyway. Um, but no, I thought it was a very nice, really wonderful thing for her to do. Um, she was awarded the Miguel Medal by the American Federation for the Blind. I hope I'm saying that right, Miguel. Michael, the Anti McDonald Center opened in Princeton as the new headquarters of reading for the blind. She was given an honorary doctorate from Yale in 1988. Um, Wow, I messed up her death date. Let me Google that real quick. I had 1933 (laughs) and she did not die in 1933. Why did I make that typo? I could have given her a posthumous uh, doctorate. True, but you know, no, she passed away 1993, October wow. 9th, 1993. That is a big difference. That's a lot of threes. Big That's difference. 19, it, she was 96 years old when she passed Damn, away. Man. Um, she is buried beside her husband at Woodlawn Cemetery in the Bronx, which you've heard us talk about before because several people we've covered ha- are buried there. I've got to go to this place because there are so many cool people right? buried there. We have there. to go visit our other friend in Brooklyn. I know. Um, Olive Thomas, who yeah. we, you covered, yeah. is buried there. Um, didn't you cover Nellie Bly, Hannah? Yes. Yep. She's buried there. Um, alongside Miles Davis, Duke Ellington, Irving Berlin, Diane Carroll, Geraldine Fitzgerald. She's this wonderful Old Hollywood actress. She was in Dark Victory with Betty Davis, and I love her. W.C. Handy, who I thought, like an idiot, was buried in Memphis. But no, no, <laughs> not from Memphis. Didn't die in Memphis. So what do I know? Elizabeth Cady Stanton, the uh, Strausses from the Titanic. Yeah. They only recovered his body. They didn't recover his Aww. wife's body. Um, but they are buried there. They have a marker. Cecily Tyson, oh, who is major, mentioned earlier, Madam C.J. Walker. Yeah. Like, so many cool people are buried at this. There's also like a billion politicians I did not care oh, about. Yeah. Please don't yeah. ever let us cover politicians. I don't know politicians, business people, and then some gangsters. We should do a gangster episode. I, we've done one. We can do another. Uh, you know, we need more. I know. <laughs> Especially I'm in Chicago. I've got gangsters coming out of my ears. Yeah, you do. Um, so, yeah, so she shares a marker with her husband. It has his name and dates, and then it has her name and dates, and it also says founder of Recording for the Blind. I love um, it. Clearly, yeah. she's everything, and he's just kin. <laughs> <laughs> um, but anyway, the the reason why I wanted to cover audiobooks, my mother told me about these ladies a few months ago, and I was just fascinated by them. I'm still fascinated by them. Um, the seed of the audiobook industry was Caveman Records, the first record company dedicated to selling only spoken work recordings to the public. So this is really where audiobooks, um, somebody pours gasoline on them and they just go to town. This is just yeah. really where the, 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 the baby comes from. So it's founded in New York in 1952 by two college friends, Barbara Holdridge and Marianne Mantell. Both women were born in 1929. Barbara was born in New York City, and Marianne was born to a Jewish family in Germany. And as you can imagine, they had to flee the Nazis. Yeah, Yeah. 29 in Germany. Yeah, you got to go, babe. Yeah, so um, we hate Nazis. We do. Um, Nazis are Confederates. As a general rule. Hey, one and the same. Except yeah. the Confederate is a Nazi, and Nazi is a Confederate, as far as I'm concerned. Um, anyway, the, her family... Us. 
Yeah, I don't care. Uh, they first went to London, then they came over to New York. And Barbara and Marianne met at Hunter College. Marianne got a degree in Greek, and Barbara got a degree in the humanities. So in 1952, Barbara was working for a publishing company. Marianne was working for a record producer. And they had tossed the idea of recording Shakespeare's sonnets and other works to record companies, like really doing like these nice productions. Mm -hmm. And no one was interested. So they decided to pull their money together and start what they wanted to start, which was basically an audiobook company, but, you know, on record. Yeah. <laughs> so they scraped together $1,800 and they founded Caveman Records, named after the medieval poet. And they heard that the poet Dylan Thomas was going to give a speaking in New York. So they attended the event, uh, hoping to catch him and say, hey, can we record your you recording your poems and they didn't get a chance to get him but they tracked him down long story short they pitched the idea to him he was kind of like i don't know about this but he ended up doing it mm. so dylan thomas uh recorded um several of his poems including do not go gentle into that good night on february 22nd 1952 at steinway hall and he recorded a child's christmas in wales on the B side, which a lot of people said was kind of done as like an afterthought, like he couldn't even remember the title of it, but they needed something for the B side. And um, so this ended up becoming a huge hit, especially with A Child's Christmas in Wales. Like that just became something that people listen to every Christmas. And it really cemented his career. And it also cemented Caveman Records as a legit record label because it was such a huge hit. Um, and it's this is really considered the beginning of the audiobook industry. And also, you got to think, too, this was the only women-owned record company at the time. The yeah. only. Like, there were very few women in the recording industry. And then you have a whole label owned by women. Um, And it was different, too, because for the first time ever, you have the writer reading their own work the way they heard it, you know? So that's really a big deal, too. Marion later said, only when we... When he began to record A Child's Christmas in Wales, did we know what we were, did we know that we were participating in, a, in an event historic in English literature, the discovery of a genre, literature that, like music, must be performed to achieve its real effect? And the New York Times said about this same time frame, in an era when... American business was dominated by Fortune 500 companies. It was a rare it was rare enough for two recent college graduates to create what was in essence a tech startup aimed at disrupting two industries, book publishing and the rec and the record business. And in an era when those corporate giants were run largely by men in Brooks Brothers suits, it was even more unusual for two women to do so. We love to see a girl boss, girl mm -hmm. boss. Yes. yes, we do. So Marianne and Barbara went on to record a many, many, many other writers reading their own work. Sometimes you did have actors reading works by major authors, but usually only if they had already passed. Um, but some of the writers they worked with include Eudora Welty, Ernest Hemingway, Robert Frost, Gertrude Stein, T.S. Eliot, Sylvia Plath, Tennessee Williams, William Faulkner, Zora Neale Hurston, Langston Hughes, and many more. They got J.R.R. Tolkien to uh, record Lord of the Rings. And of course, he spoke in fluent Elvish. Ah, which is cool. I really, we have to find the Faulkner one because I have never heard his voice. Um, you can find a lot of their, their stuff on YouTube. Okay. 
Um, I, and this I is just giving looked... me such a flashback to high school English because when we did Macbeth, our teacher just put on a record and yeah. like it played Macbeth, and it, and it probably awesome. came. It probably from came from records. them. That's what I was thinking because all of Shakespeare's stuff is public domain. Yeah. Um, and they also recorded children's stories, speeches, uh, theater works, famous actors and actresses performed these plays for the label. So you had Richard Burton, Boris Karloff, Vincent Price, oh, Albert Finney, yes. Vanessa Redgrave, Maggie Smith, just to name a few. Wow. Um, just they worked with everyone who's awesome. And I love the company's slogan, a third dimension for the printed page. Oh. I just thought it was very Awesome. And then just fun fact, throwing in there, a young unknown Andy Warhol designed the album cover for a Tennessee Williams record, Oh, okay. which I thought was really rad. So by the, the mid-1960s, Caveman had grossed $14 million, which is more than $136 million in today's money. Damn. And they had 36 employees working at their company in Manhattan. And by the 1970s, the ladies were ready to... Kind of move on a little bit. Uh, they sold the company to a publishing company, DC Heath, which is now a part of Harper Audio. So when you listen to something from Harper Audio, chances are, you know, going back yeah. and it's its ancestors, Caveman. Um, Barbara did stay on for another five years. Uh, she was the president of the company, but Marianne went on to start a documentary film distribution company with her husband, who he did some PR, and then he also became a documentary filmmaker. So oh. after leaving Cademan, now part of D.C. Heath, um, which is a textbook company, by the way. Well, I think it started as a textbook company. Yeah. Either way, Barbara founded Stimmer House Publishers in 1975, and that was the first general book publishing house in the state of Maryland. And she also taught publishing at Loyola. Uh, in 2002, Barbara was inducted into the National Women's Hall of Fame. I don't know why they have not put Marianne in there but I cannot find her in there. Uh, but she and Marianne were given a special Lifetime Achievement Award at the Audi Awards in 2001 for founding Caveman. Huh. Um, both of these ladies did marry and have children. I didn't really go into all that because I was more interested in the books. But uh, Barbara married Larry Holdridge, an engineer. They had two daughters, Eleanor and Diana. Marianne married documentary filmmaker Harold Mantell in 1956. And they had three sons, David, Stephen, and Michael, and a daughter, Eva. As far as I can tell, Barbara's still alive. She's about 93 or 94. Oh. But we lost Mary Marianne earlier this year. She died on January 22nd, 2023, at the age of 93. Mm, Man. Bless. And what I hate is I cannot find where she's buried. I can't find where her husband is buried. I can't find where I think two of her sons preceded her in death i cannot find where they're buried i've looked everywhere y'all no. um so i hate to not have a cemetery connected to this story i know cemetery row yada yada but i just was so inspired by these ladies and what they accomplished and really how their quote-unquote invention or the, the way they revolutionized the business you know and it impacts me daily i listen to Absolutely. audiobooks literally every single day so there's a Grammy award for spoken word. Now. There is. Yeah. I, what is your favorite audiobook that you've heard in the last couple of years? Like what, what, what's been your favorite, whether it's the story, the narrator. There was one I listened to recently that I was like, the narrator really sold it for me. And the narrator was better than the story itself, mm -hmm. but the only, well, 
I can think of two that come to mind specifically. One is Jason Mott's Hell of a Book, which is about um, it's about a black writer who is on a book tour. And it's kind of set now-ish, like in this whole sphere of uh, police brutality mm-hmm. and being scared, you know, growing up black in a country where the your own police won't protect you. And he sees a image of a little boy everywhere he goes. It's, mm. it's a little black boy. And you don't know throughout the story is it him is it a ghost following him like you're not sure what it is and it all comes together at the end it's just so powerfully and beautifully written and i remember in it he said this the entire south is a crime scene Mm. and i was like god almighty that's that hit me so hard um that's really incredible book just start finish easily the best thing i've read in forever um but also hanif abduraki and i think i'm saying his name right wrote oh jesus uh little devil and little devil in america crap i can't believe i can't remember this um he wrote a book it's all in praise of black performances and every um chapter is about all kinds of different black performances through the years cool. and it delves deeply into a little devil in america notes and praise a black performance um like he talks about like why is it that black people always win oscars for portraying slave right. stories but yeah. not a happy black story or yeah. whatever but it's more than that too he has this great chapter and i've never noticed it till he pointed out that whitney houston couldn't dance and it was like <laughs> her trying to perform a song and it's like the backup dancers are doing their thing and she's trying and she just can't. And well, I don't know, but it's a church singer. Leave her he was a church yeah. singer, but I mean, it's so much deeper than that. And it's so beautifully written. I really love the way he writes. Um, those are just two off the top of my head. Last mm-hmm. book on the left's audio version was fabulous. It was really, really good. I'll tell you it, it, it all comes down a lot of times to who read, who read it because sometimes the the narrator just yeah yeah the boys read they their own kill book, it. which i appreciated yeah my, that makes um, a difference so my favorite book audiobook is um it's a fantasy by um a lady naomi novick called spinning silver mm-hmm. and it's really good fantasy elements just just my cup of tea but the narrator for that one uh she does different voices cuz it it's told from a couple of different perspectives yeah. and yeah you can tell who she's like what story she's talking who she's talking about based on her how she changes her voice yeah um and then she had another one i can't remember the name of it uh un un, un not unspooled but some un, uprooted that's mm-hmm. a great book but the narrator has this accent that she's it makes it very hard to listen to yeah because you have yeah. to really focused to understand what she's saying um and then my favorite book of all time i listen to it every year or i read it whatever the case is is the stupidest angel by christopher moore (laughs) by far my favorite book it's it's just hilarious it's heartwarming it brings in all of his characters from his other books um it's narrated great and so if you've never read christopher moore please 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 like he is Stupidest Angel is my favorite, but he's got others that bring the lust lizard of melancholy cove. (laughs) Like the title he wrote, 
the one that he's most known for is Lamb or The Gospel According to Biff, Christ's yeah. Childhood Pal. And yes, I have yeah. it I in a I have it in a like Bible format because I'm heathen. <laughs> it's he he is hilarious. Um for production anyway. values, the um audiobook versions of Dune, they actually oh. have different readers for the different yeah. characters. Yeah. And it's almost like listening to like a radio play. Mm-hmm. It's so because like a f- a guy I was trying to pick up on was really into Dune. So I did the pick me thing <laughs> and I was like, wait, I can't read this. This, this, my brain is not. Yeah. Yeah. The words on the page are not going into my brain. So I listened to the audio version and it was a hoot, just an yeah. absolute hoot. And so did not end up going anywhere with that dude, but still enjoyed Dune. So, well, that's um, how um they did. Uh, so Lee Bardugo, who wrote Shadow and Bone, which, you know, mm-hmm. Netflix series, um, the other series that is featured in that show, Six of Crows, she did that because each chapter is told from the point of view of one of the different characters and they have yeah. a different narrator voicing Love those it. chapters. Yeah. So that 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 makes it more compelling than yeah, just it does. For sure. somebody trying to do, especially when you have a male narrator trying to do female dialogue and <laughs> yeah. make their yeah. voice sound. And I'm like, oh, honey, no, just get a female yes. in here. Another, I will say this, brief Shout out to another book I, re- I read and loved. Um, Stephen Graham Jones, who is an incredible writer. I've read so much of his stuff. Um, he is two books into his uh, trilogy. Um, My Heart is a Chainsaw is the first one. The second one is Don't yes. Fear the Reaper. Okay. Those I've read books. My Heart is a Chainsaw. Okay. You are Jade Daniels. Okay. <laughs> you are Jade. Like when I read <laughs> I that, I was like... See. Yeah, like there's so I really loved that book partly because I'm like that's Hannah, that's my Hannah. I like, had to reread it. Yeah, I loved it so much I because got I'm it like in a creepy crate. It's like it's up so good. So oh, you got to read the sequel. You got to okay, read the sequel. Don't fear okay. the reaper. I read that earlier this year, and that is so good. I loved it so much, and I've been reading a lot of Zora Neale Hurston. Um, you Sometimes cannot you just got to do the classics. You've yeah. got to. I mean, I'd never read. Um, their eyes were watching God until last year, mm-hmm. this year. Incredible. Oh, wow. Incredible. Yeah. That was Incredible. a high school one for me. Oh, oh well, and God I forbid here in the audio. South. We read oh, yeah. Ours. Yeah. No. That, and the only reason I read it and I was, a, I was in an AP class. In, uh, so, and that's the only reason. None of the other English classes yeah. read it. Yeah. Two other ones. And then I swear I'm done. <laughs> um, I really love books. Octavia yes. Butler's Kindred. Okay. Oh, my God, it it's so difficult to listen to, but it's so genius. It's about a woman. She, the book was written, I think, in the 70s, maybe 80s. But it's a woman in the 70s, uh, black woman living with her white husband. Everything's great. But she s- keeps getting pulled back in time to the slavery times by this oh, one wow. little white boy who she learns is her ancestor. Oh, and wow. she goes back and forth in time. At some point, she does bring her husband with her she doesn't always mean to netflix (laughs) no netflix or hulu um just made it into a show and then they canceled it and i'm like you literally that you literally it was one season and they dropped it off the worst moment ever because i'm like oh god you literally didn't she lift hanged us parable of the sower yes Uh, Octavia Butler has written a ton of sci-fi books. So if you want to read a black sci-fi writer, I I cannot recommend her more. Um, 
But Kindred is amazing. Not always an easy read, but amazing. And then if you want to read a really good rock and roll memoir, written, written, mm-hmm. read by the author, Debbie Harry's Face It. I loved every second. <laughs> I love Blondie. And it just made me appreciate Blondie 10 times more. It's so good. I really loved it. There's a okay. zillion. I could, I, need go, to, I could list a billion other books. I need to interject because it's really funny because my dad played one way or another for Bonnie. Because um, <laughs> he started singing. He's like, he likes to like happy trails. He's trying to get her to sing songs because she when, when she rides her pony, she sings. Um, and so and maybe we'll post it on the socials if i can find it but she will not stop singing one way or another yes i like love the, it. The raising her right yes yeah, she's so cute I mean, um but yeah so anyway i do have a quick quote from marianne to close us yeah, out on let's do it um again i'm so sorry i don't know where she's buried it breaks my heart anyway her quote is we were not just out to preserve celebrity voices to the extent that a poet is a celebrity our purchase purpose was literary to capture on tape as nearly as possible what the poet heard in his head as he wrote oh which that. i, I think that. is so cool i'm a big fan and i know she's problematic as i'll get out but i love flannery o'connor and mm-hmm. i found her reading a good man is hard to find online <gasps> oh love my that. god it changed so much for me because i finally got to hear her voice and just the way she said some words i'm like god bless you you southern southern have um the life you saved may be your own because that was my other favorite of hers uh i I love everything by her i love everything by her and i know problematic as all get out but god genius white women in the south problematic. i know yeah but um (laughs) I've made the pilgrimage to her childhood home in Savannah and I've bought, like I cleared them out of merchandise practically the last time I was there. And I think they were like, can you please leave? We're not going to have anything left. And I'm like, I know, but I love her so much. Anyway. I love it. Um, Hannah, you are wrapping us up. Yes. I'm going to wrap us up <laughs> with somebody probably is problematic. <laughs> <laughs> um, But this guy, you know, as I was, I did the same thing Lori did. And that was look at inventors graves through a Google search. Um, and I found his his uh, monument, which is amazing, even though I'm not a huge fan of him. I'm sure he was wonderful, but I'm just it is what it is. So <laughs> yeah. here we go. We are talking about Howard Robard Hughes Sr. You may know his son. We're not oh. about his son currently, though I probably will cover his son at some time. He was born September 9th, 1869. And he died January 14th, 1924. So he was an American businessman and inventor and the founder of the Hughes Tool Company. Um, And he invented the Sharp Hughes Rotary Tricone Rock Drill Bit, (laughs) um, which revolutionized the Texas oil boom. And he was, again, (laughs) also the father of Howard Hughes. Yep. Um, so Howard Robard Sr. was born, like we said, on September 9th of 1869 in Lancaster, Missouri, um, the son of Jean Amelia and Judge Felix Turner Hughes. Um, and they both outlived him, which is kind of tragic. Oh, wow. Um, Hughes had an older sister named Greta, who was known by her stage name, Jean Greta, who was a <laughs> grand opera and concert singer. His younger brother, Rupert Hughes, was a novelist and screenwriter. And his other brother, Felix Jr., was a baritone opera singer. Well, okay. 
So very musical, creative household. And he ends up being a disgusting industrialist. But what can you do? (laughs) Um, Hughes was a classic entrepreneur, trying and failing at many things before finding his success. He spent childhood and early adulthood in Keokuk, Iowa. And he lived in New York City, where he was a member of the Harvard Club, Denver, Colorado, Joplin, Missouri, and Beaumont, Texas, before finally settling in Houston, where um, they gave him and his wife gave birth to Howard Jr. Mm. So he graduated from the Missouri Military Academy in a place called Mexico, Missouri. (laughs) So that was a thing. Yeah. He entered Harvard University in 1893 and dropped out the next year. (laughs) About this, he says, after leaving Harvard in 94, I found myself in the law school of Iowa State University. That was back when you could drop out of college and immediately go into law school. Mm -hmm. It was my father's wish that I succeed him in practice. Too impatient to await the course of graduation, I passed the examination before the Supreme Court of Iowa and began the practice of law. Again, things you could do. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, I soon found the law too, t- too exacting a mistress for a man of my talent. And I quit her okay. between dark and dawn and have never been back. I decided to search for my fortune under the surface of the earth. Okay. He just said, I ain't got, I, I can't do this. This yeah. is too much. I don't know if it's too much or maybe he was just. You know, he said it was too exacting. So it was, yeah. He's just one of those dudes that needs to be out doing shit. Apparently. Which is fine. Go out, do shit. (laughs) Um, So his wife, he married Aline Stone Gano on June 24th, 1904 in Dallas County, Texas, and engaged in various mining, mining endeavors before capitalizing on the spindle top oil discovery in Texas. As a result, he began devoting his entire full time to the oil business. Um, in 1908, he filed the basic patents for the Sharp Hughes rock bit. And on August 10th, 1909, he was granted those patents for the rock drill. Hughes's two-cone rotary drill bit, nicknamed Rock Eater, <laughs> penetrated medium and hard rock with 10 times the speed of any former bit, and its development revolutionized oil well drilling. It's unlikely that he actually invented it, But his legal experience (laughs) helped him in understanding that its patents were important for capitalizing on the invention. He cuckoo bird it. According to the (laughs) PBS show History Detectives, several other people and companies had produced similar drill bits years earlier. And its initial tests at Goose Creek Oil Field in 1909, where the first offshore drilling for oil in Texas was occurring, uh, the Sharp Hughes rock bit penetrated in 11 hours, 14 feet of hard rock, which no previous equipment had been able to penetrate at all. He co-founded the Sharp Hughes Tool Company with Walter Benona Sharp in 1909. After Sharp's death in 1912, he took over management. Uh, Hughes began purchasing the the Sharp stock. Jesus, alliteration is coming (laughs) for me. Immediately in 1918, he had acquired full ownership of the company. Um, so he's less a genius, more of a businessman. So hey, <laughs> the essential assets of the Hughes Tool Company, as it was renamed, were the basis for Hughes Tools revenues. And by 1914, the dual cone roller bit was used in 11 U.S. states and 13 foreign countries. 
Hugh himself whimsically remarked that one of his fond plans was to drill the deepest well in the world. Comparing his quest to Earth's center to Admondson's South Pole expedition and Robert Perry's North Pole ex- expedition. Sir, don't do that. <laughs> <laughs> On January 14th, 1924, Hughes died of a heart attack caused by an embolism at his company's office on the fifth floor of the Humble Oil Building in Houston at the age of 54. Hmm. After his death, his only child, Howard Jr., assumed control of the company as its 75% owner at the age of 19. Ooh. I didn't and realize his, he was so young. Yeah. That's why he went a little cuckoo in his yeah. later years. In his will, Hugh C- Sr. had left the remaining 25% to his parents, Felix Sr. Um, and his brother, Felix Jr. A little more than a year after his father's death, Hughes Jr. had him dis- had himself declared an adult. Um, the age of majority at the time was 21. Mm-hmm. And bought out his grandparents and uncle. And now was controlling the entirety of the Hughes Tool Company. The next year, 1925, he appointed Noah Dietrich as CEO of Hughes Tool, while he himself left for California to pursue filmmaking and aviation. Mm-hmm. Much to uh, the world's chagrin. Yeah. Um, in 1933, Hughes Tool engineers created a tricone rotary drill bit. And from 1934 to 1951, Hughes' market share approached 100%. The sharp Hughes rock rock bit found virtually all the oil discovered during the initial year, years of rotary drilling and Hughes Jr became one of the most wealthy one of the wealthiest people in the world from its revenues um he also started casino industry in Vegas he didn't start it but he was a money man behind it in mm-hmm. 1972 by the time by which time Hughes tool had become widely diversified Hughes Jr. sold the Nucleus Tool Division and realized $150 million from the sale in Jeez. 1972. In 1987, Hughes, tooled, Hughes Tool merged with Baker International to form Baker Hughes, a large oil field company still based in Houston, who has definitely tried to recruit my dad. <laughs> if you're listening to this, Baker Hughes, recruit my dad. Um, So... The family gravesite at Glenwood Cemetery in Houston is four models of the drill bit. What? All in a semicircle with a stone kind of backdrop. And it's pretty fucking cool. <laughs> oh, wow. So um, hang on. I'll send you girls a picture in the chat because it's pretty fucking neat. And that's honestly why I chose it because I'm like that is amazing yeah i don't give a shit about industrialists and all that bullshit but this is a really cool ass gravestone that's awesome let's see oh my god isn't that neat (laughs) that's exactly what that is yeah so it's just the drill bits um you know four of them stood up and it's pretty cool um so you know I guess we needed to have an oil industry here in the States, but I ain't got to like it. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, that is Howard Robard Hughes Sr. and his really cool fucking drill bit grave. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, when that gave you all your money, I guess that's how you hey, celebrate you it. Hey, you know what? You have to memorialize it because, yeah. you know, that's, that's your moneymaker, quite literally. So is... 
So the daddy and the son are both I here? I do believe all of them are there. Wow. Let me double check. I don't want anyone. That's not true. Because Howard Hughes Jr. was the. Yeah, I think so. Because it says Howard Hughes Jr. Yeah, is buried here. Yeah. Yeah. Wild. Yeah. And uh, Glenwood. I would have thought he would have been buried in Hollywood. Yeah. I guess I never thought about where he was buried. Mm -hmm. Or Vegas. Yeah. But because I think, didn't he? I believe he died in vegas he might have i don't know but yeah it's behind a fence it's got it's really well landscaped it's really really cool yeah it looks really pretty well gee whiz yeah now i want to go there and <laughs> oh yeah wait till you see pictures of um aaron montgomery ward's tomb it's epic yeah that's cool all right okay. ladies yeah well, we thank you for this journey. Yes. Um, thank you for tuning in. As always, please go leave us a nice review. Nothing mean. Um, and can't in honor of our booze milestone birthday coming we- up. Yes. Tell them what our next episode's going to be. Haunted houses. Woo! Because what Sheena wants, Sheena gets. Absolutely. <laughs> Not necessarily. I was like, we don't have to do it, y'all. Um, but I'm going to be 40 in May. So we are going to celebrate with some ghosts, which ghosts are like Fabulous my favorite topic. 40. Absolutely. Yeah, I hope so. So if you see our deer in Memphis around that date. If please, you go on her tour in May, yeah. just, it doesn't Make matter sure. when. Just, just say, yep. happy, happy birthday. birthday. Woo! Um, so yeah, that'll be fun. Um, Lou, where can they find us online so they can tell us that we're great? <laughs> yes, we are on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Cemetery Row Pod, or you can always email us. Uh, happy birthday messages are welcome <laughs> to Cemetery Row Pod at gmail.com. And I will make sure those get passed on to Sheena. So, Whee! yes, and tell your friends about us. Yes, yes please. That's how we get more listeners and we yeah. need more listeners. And follow Sheena on TikTok where she yes. does her grave yes. cleaning. Yes. yes. So the once, once was, was I. Because it's after the epitaph of Because every now, time I hear. So once was I. Hey, y'all. I'm like. Yeah. <laughs> yes, that's girl. why I do that. It's that's why Sheena. I do that. It's my branding. Um, hey, y'all. Here's the grave of somebody. <laughs> <laughs> and And I cleaned it. And it's. Yeah, nice and depressing. Like and that there's one also the, the other one day. of the lady who's doing all of the cookie recipes that are on people's. I like her. Stones. We I need to get her on here. Yes, yes, um, definitely. We do because yeah, I like that she's doing that. Yeah, she just finds graves with um, recipes on them. She makes the recipe, which I'm like, that's delicious. The person who is buried there, that is why they did it. So. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. All right, all ladies. Right. Well, well, we will see you next time. Or woohoo! Yeah, next time. Bye. Bye.